You're listening to Writer Presents, a Radio Molly production. This edition of Writer Presents was written and presented by Claire Louise Bennett. Claire Louise Bennett grew up in Wiltshire and studied literature and drama at the University of Roehampton before moving to Ireland, where she worked in and studied theatre for several years. In 2013, she was awarded the inaugural White Review Short Story Prize and went on to complete her debut book, Pond, which was published by The Stinging Fly in Ireland, Fitzcarraldo Editions in the UK, and by Riverhead in the United States. Pond was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize in 2016. Claire Louise Bennett's new novel, Check Out 19, will be published by Jonathan Cape in August 2021. Writer Presents is produced with the support of the Arts Council on Corla Allian. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie. commencer, je croyais être capable de me rappeler chaque détail. Je n'ai retenu en fait que l'atmosphère, la position de chacun dans la cuisine, quelques paroles. Je ne sais plus quelle l'avait enlevé en prévision de la promenade, ce que nous avons mangé. Je n'ai aucun souvenir précis de la matinée du dimanche, en dehors Hello, I'm Claire Louise Bennett. I'm a writer, and for the next while, I'm going to talk about three writers I'm very, very fond of. Tove Ditlevson, Annie Ono, and Anne Quinn. I wish I'd come across their books earlier in my life, but that would have been impossible, because their books have only been published in the UK and Ireland recently. Tove Ditlevson's Copenhagen Trilogy by Penguin in 2019. Fitzcarraldo brought out the years by Annie Ono in 2018, and since then they have published five more of her books, most recently Simple Passion. 2018 also saw and other stories publication of The Unmapped Country, a collection of short fiction and fragments by Anne Quinn, edited by Jennifer Hodgson, who you'll hear from a bit later on, along with Daughter Norris, Deborah Levy and Lawrence Leluyo. What links these three women writers is that they came from working class backgrounds and their path to becoming published writers was fraught with a lot of challenges, existentially, financially, and socially. I myself am from a working-class background, though interestingly, this is something I'd pretty much forgotten about since moving to Ireland. I've lived in Galway for 20-odd years now, and a lot of my reason for leaving England was because I didn't have very many options available to me in terms of what I was going to do with my life. It was quite a narrow and rigid idea of what a person did with their life in the working-class world that I grew up in. I'd been to university, but once that was finished, that was the end of that. It didn't lead to anything. I had no useful networks or connections. I was just back in my hometown, Swindon, thinking, well, that was that then. That had no impact whatsoever on my life or the course it might take. I had to just get on with it now and earn a living. I remember people kept asking me that. When are you going to get on with it? That phrase, get on with it, it drove me bananas. Get on with what? Get on with getting a job and a house and a husband and all the rest of it. And I just didn't want to. I wasn't interested or able for any of that at all. I had jobs. I'd done office work and I'd done night shifts. And I'd worked in warehouses and factories and catering and retail. 
I'd done all those sorts of jobs and I just hated the way they took up all of my time and forced me to be indoors for hours on end. I didn't want to be indoors. I wanted to be outside. Growing up in Wiltshire, I liked the countryside a lot and wanted to get out in it as much as possible. But once childhood ends, that's all over, it seems, and I could feel adult life pressing in on me from all sides. And it just got more and more oppressive and suffocating. I was frequently trying to manage horrendous meltdowns in the toilet cubicle of this or that factory or shop or office complex. But I couldn't see any alternatives. I just couldn't see any way around it. So I thought, I've got to get out of here. So I came to Ireland. So many Irish people have gone to England to get work, and I came to Ireland to get away from it. And being here, when no one can really place me and no one's particularly interested in doing that anyway, has been liberating. My working class origins aren't a part of my identity here, so they haven't shaped how I live my life or what I've dared to hope for. And I always wanted to write. And in Ireland, I found the space and the support to do that. I wasn't under the same pressures or scrutiny here as I was in England. Then after many years of doing different things, washing dishes and working in theatre, studying for a PhD and doing a bit of teaching, quitting that to work in a bike shop, being on and off the dole, serving breakfasts in a B&B, writing all the while, of course. Eventually, my first book, Pond, was published, here and in the UK in 2015. Publication in Britain meant that for the first time in a long time, I was going over to England fairly regularly. And on these trips, I was going specifically as a writer. I was meeting people within the literary world, most of whom, as we know, are white, educated, middle-class people. And I found myself in very pleasant and welcoming situations, where I nonetheless felt for the first time in Aeon self-conscious and very aware of my accent. And I realised that occasionally I was speaking in a smarter sort of voice. And when I tried to go back and speak in my own voice, it felt like I was putting it on. It was a strange and confusing experience. I didn't quite know to what camp I belonged. Am I middle class now that I am a successful writer? To what extent was I really working class anyway? I felt as if I were falling between two stools. And I was reminded of many things I'd felt as a discontent young woman in England. It all came back, this mixture of feelings, frustration, irritation, pride, nervousness, embarrassment, displacement, guilt, anger. Discovering the work of Tove Ditlevson, Annie Ono and Anne Quinn has been a real gift. Reading their books gave me the courage to spend time with all those conflicting feelings that being reacquainted with my long-lost working-class self stirred up and has provided me with the intellectual space to properly think through the relationship between class and writing and womanhood. Om morgenen var håbet der. Det sad som et flygtigt lysskær i min mors sorte, glatte hår, som jeg aldrig vågede at røre ved, og det lå mig på tungen sammen med sukkeret på den lunkne havregrød, jeg langsomt spiste, mens jeg betragtede min mors smalle, foldede hænder, der lå helt stille på avisen hen over beretninger om den spanske syge og Versailles-traktaten. Min far var gået på arbejde, og min bror var i skole, så var min mor alene, selvom jeg var der, 
og hvis jeg var helt stille og ingenting sagde, kunne den fjerne ro i hendes underlige hjerte vare lige til formiddagen var blevet gammel, og hun skulle ud og købe ind i Istegade, ligesom almindelige koner. That was the Danish novelist Dorte Norse reading the opening lines of Childhood, the first volume of the Copenhagen trilogy by Tove Ditlevsen. I don't speak any Danish at all, and I don't imagine many of you do either, so here is the same passage in English. In the morning there was hope. It sat like a fleeting gleam of light in my mother's smooth black hair that I never dared touch. It lay on my tongue with the sugar and the lukewarm oatmeal I was slowly eating while I looked at my mother's slender, folded hands that lay motionless on the newspaper, on top of the reports of Spanish flu and the Treaty of Versailles. My father had left for work, and my brother was in school. So my mother was alone, even though I was there, and if I was absolutely still and didn't say a word, the remote calm in her inscrutable heart would last until the morning had grown old, and she had to go out to do the shopping in Instaga, like ordinary housewives. Ditlevson was born in Vesterbro, Copenhagen, in 1917. I have actually visited Vesterbro. I had dinner there some years ago in a very cool restaurant in the meatpacking district. But like a lot of these hip areas, Vesterbro was in fact a very poor, rough kind of neighbourhood. And it is this pre-tasting menu Vesterbro that Tove grew up in. Within the first pages of childhood, we get a really vivid portrait of this environment and the apartment where Tove lived with her parents and older brother. We hear about how the wallpaper is patched together with brown tape, how her mother draws the curtains before dark because her father is sat near the window reading illustrated socialist books. Meanwhile, her brother is hammering nails into a board and pulling them out with pliers. Her father falls asleep on the sofa and snores loudly. Her mother starts to sing shrilly. Downstairs, the neighbours who work at Carlsberg and drink 50 beers a day are roaring and shouting and beating their daughter with a thin stick. A prostitute lives with her daughter across the landing. There's a pervert hanging about the courtyard near the outside toilet. Young girls gossip lewdly in the trash can corner. In the streets, drunken men lie in the gutter with broken, bloody heads, while the unemployed stand about freezing cold, their hands rammed deep into their pockets, a burned-out pipe between their teeth. In the mornings, when it is still completely dark, Tove frequently scampers off to the bakery to fetch stale pastries. Sometimes the family live on hardened cream puffs and coffee for days. What endures in my memory of this account of her early life is not so much these grim details, which are relayed matter-of-factly, but a really clear and still image of a young Tove sitting up on her windowsill at night just before bed. I look into the dark courtyard way down below and at the front building's wall that's always crying as if it has just rained. Between the walls I can see a little scrap of sky where a single star sometimes shines. I call it the evening star and I think about it with all my might when my mother has been in to turn off the light. She describes this moment as the happiest hour of her day and we begin to sense already that here is someone able to carve out their own little private realm who is striving to connect with something far beyond their circumstances. 
Indeed, despite the family's rough situation, something curious is going on inside Tove. I carried the cups out to the kitchen, and inside of me, long, mysterious words began to crawl across my soul like a protective membrane, she writes. One such word is lamentation, which she discovers in something by Gorky. She loves this word but doesn't know what it means. She asks her father and he explains that it is a Russian term that means pain and misery and sorrow. Gorky, he concludes, was a great poet. At this, an excited Tove exclaims that she wants to be a poet too. Her father frowns and says severely, Don't be a fool. A girl can't be a poet. Offended and hurt, I withdrew into myself again while my mother and Edwin laughed at the crazy idea. I vowed never to reveal my dreams to anyone again, and I kept this vow throughout my childhood. Undaunted, Tove secretly nurtures ideas and dreams that are completely at odds with the environment she is in. She takes them seriously and recognises that her talents might in fact lift her into a more interesting and exciting world. At the same time, she is careful to disguise what is going on inside her. She doesn't want to attract attention and invite further derision, so she takes to wearing a mask of stupidity and copying other people's reactions to things. Whenever it starts singing inside me, I'm especially careful not to let my mask show any holes. None of the grown-ups can stand the song in my heart or the garlands of words in my soul. When a little something of her secret channel seeps through, the adults pick up on it and are quick to accuse her of putting on airs. Children, of course, are much harder to fool. They sense what's going on exactly. You're going around playing dumb, one of them declares menacingly. You shouldn't pretend you're something you're not, says another. Having to conceal her burgeoning and inquisitive inner world is not so easy. Sometimes it weighs on her. I have to keep everything to myself, and sometimes I think I'm going to suffocate, she writes. At the same time, she is in no hurry to grow up because she is so afraid of what being an adult entails. Whenever she thinks about it, she runs up against a wall everywhere and goes on to describe the future as a monstrous, powerful colossus that will soon fall on me and crush me. But of course you can't prolong childhood, and Tove begins to feel it becoming threadbare, it doesn't quite fit her anymore, and it's no longer possible to keep clinging on to it. Towards the end of the novel, a chapter begins with a beautiful, heart-rending account of her childhood's final season. My childhood's last spring is cold and windy. It tastes of dust and smells of painful departures and change. In school, everyone is involved with preparations for exams and confirmation but I see no meaning in any of it. You don't need a middle school diploma to clean a house or wash dishes for strangers. And confirmation is the tombstone over a childhood that now seems to me bright, secure and happy. Everything during this time makes a deep indelible impression on me and it's as if I'll remember even completely trivial remarks my whole life. When I'm out buying confirmation shoes with my mother, she says, as the sales clerk listens, Yes, these will be the last shoes we give you. It opens a terrifying perspective on the future, and I don't know how I'll go about supporting myself. Ditlifson craved a different scale of existence, a richer life than the one she saw around her, 
but she didn't come from money. On the contrary, her father was frequently unemployed. And as a working-class woman, she could hardly expect to gain employment in a profession that paid well. So what were her options? To do a job she loathes and tires her out, or to marry the first stable-skilled worker who comes her way? What she desires more than anything is the space and privacy to write. But how is she going to get that? In the second part of the trilogy, Youth, her frustration at her circumstances and her determination to exceed them grow in equal measure. I want so badly to have a place where I can practice writing real poems, she writes. I'd like to have a room with four walls and a closed door. A room with a bed, a table and a chair, with a typewriter or a pad of paper and a pencil, nothing more. Well, yes, a door I could lock. This, of course, puts me in mind of Virginia Woolf's seminal essay, A Room of One's Own, published in 1929, when Ditlevson would have been 12 years old. Woolf argued that in order to write freely, a woman must have her own private room, with a lock on it indeed, and £500 a year. As writer and critic Jennifer Hodgson observed in the conversation I had with her about Anne Quinn, Woolf's notion of a room of her own was of a space within a comfortable family home that she has the domestic, social and financial scaffolding to maintain. She almost certainly didn't have a cold, shabby bedsit in mind. But of course this is the only sort of semi-private accommodation that Toby Ditlevson and Anne Quinn could afford. And living alone as a woman in these kinds of lodgings in the 1930s, as was the case with Ditlevson, and in the 1960s, as Anne Quinn did, was a gruelling and unpleasant experience. Tove moves out of her family apartment when she is 18 and rents a small ice-cold room that has a chipped basin, a chair that immediately breaks and for which she is charged, and a decrepit old dresser, the handles of which are hanging off. Downstairs in the living room, there is a large picture of Hitler. Isn't he handsome, says the landlady, who soon admonishes Tove for the racket her typewriter makes. It sounds like machine guns, she complains. Nevertheless, Ditlevson persevered and her first collection of poetry, Piggerzind, or Girl's Soul in English, came out in 1939, when she was only 22 years old. I asked daughter how this happened, and how was the book received? It was a huge success. It was like a breakthrough in first strike. Um, and... Um, and then she, there's this, and this story is also in the, the Copenhagen trilogy, that she actually married the edi an editor, uh, and was completely, there was no romance in it. She did it to get in. And she says that quite bluntly. Um, he, he was, you know, the door that I had to get through to, to climb out of the place that I came from and get my dreams uh, to come through. It was really big and it was, and it's still read. And um, when I was young, all, some of the poems from that collection was put into music by one of our very big singer-songwriters. So... For ever since that, we've been singing it. It is even, you know, we, we, we community sing some of these songs. What is interesting about this collection is that it depicts the adolescent girl, the girl who, who goes from that childhood that you're stuck in and you, you have to look, go into womanhood and do what's expected from a woman. And you, and you, you tread on that path with longing and deep sorrow. I mean, the sorrow of actually having to live the life as a woman 
lives right next to the joy of going there. And that's so interesting. And what's also interesting is that men don't like that. Uh, they don't like her poetry. Or men, Danish men have not been very fond of her. And I'm reading her again now to see what is that? Can we understand why that is? And I think it is because she says all the things that make them uncomfortable and uncertain about why, whether um, women want them or not. And what we actually think about relationship and what we actually think about their needs. and what Because she's just telling it and she's telling it at an early age. So what's been happening ever since was that she sold a lot of books because women loved to read him. Because she was saying it, things that we were thinking. You know, she was writing stuff that we were all thinking. And she was writing in and also depicting our emotions, that uh, thin line between melancholy and love and all these things, and loss and despair. And... Um, so she was, it's like she was handing, handed under the table from woman to woman. And when I started reading poetry when I was very young, uh, when I went from reading children's books to reading more adult literature, uh, she was presented to me. That was what a school teacher did to me. She, she gave me to Vidilis and under the table said, you want to read poetry? You start with her. The second volume of Tove's memoir, Youth, ends with the publication of Girl Soul. The last line is, tonight I want to be alone with it because there's no one who understands what a miracle it is for me. She went on to publish 29 books in her life, but she also married four times, had problems with alcohol, became addicted to the opioid Demerol and was in and out of psychiatric care. So it seems that success and fame didn't bring her the happiness and all the things she dreamed of as a child. What was missing? Daughter told me she thinks that what was driving Tove from the beginning was a need to connect. She wants to find that person who can see her, she said. This deep need is understandable. Tove spent her childhood looking for a sign of love from her mother. She described her relationship to her as close, painful and shaky. As a young person, we've already heard that she spent so much time and energy suppressing her feelings, pretending to be something she wasn't hiding things from her mother and writing in secret. Perhaps this is why detachment occurred. I have a nagging suspicion that I'm not really capable of really feeling anything for anyone, she writes. And as the trilogy goes on, there is a sense that she is quite removed from the things going on around her. Even after Girl's Soul is published, Ditlison still finds it hard to discuss her writing with other up-and-coming authors. It continues to be a shameful activity, Something to be done in secrecy. Everything is still going on far away inside of her. Her novel The Faces, published in Denmark in 1968, was inspired by her own life. The central character, Lise, is a successful writer, for whom fame has brutally ripped away the veil that always separated her from reality. Lise is haunted by mask-like faces and disembodied voices, and descends almost willfully into a world of pills and hospital care. Often it is ambiguous as to whether the visitors who come to see her and the conversations that ensue are conjured or are real. Yet the exchange between Lise and her mother seems all too credible. Lise is anxious and paranoid. 
Convinced that the hospital staff are trying to poison her, she appeals to her mother for help. Her mother replies, You're really sick in some way, but that's just sensible punishment for all your snobbishness. You always thought you were better and smarter than your father and me, and you were ashamed to invite your fancy friends home because your father was only a stoker. Breathing slowly, he listened with the plants that sucked, dripped around and above. She went from room to room, closed windows, doors, cupboards, tried on clothes, hats, shoes, too narrow, hobbled to mirrors, squeezed into dresses, struggled out, touched the material, traced the design, folded, unfolded blouses, cardigans, slipped them on, off, until the bed floor were covered with layers of clothes, into which she flung herself, motionless, face buried, she unfolded, opened an ornamental box, tried on jewellery, bracelets slipped up her arms. She extended herself over the bed, arms held up towards the light. Her wrists twisted until the bracelets fell, jangled against each other. She put them on her ankles, undid her dress, put a dozen necklaces on, some draped over her breasts. In front of the mirror, she pulled her breasts up by holding several necklaces above her neck. The beads sprang apart, rolled at her feet, scattered over the carpet, under the bed. She crawled along, gathered them up, hands groped before her, either side, behind. She dropped the beads one by one into the box. Two remained, which she held against her nipples. Kneeling, she looked down, swung herself from side to side. Her tongue slithered over lower lip, drew it in. She licked the beads, replaced them on the extended nipples, her head thrown back, knees parted, pressed into the carpet, feet together. He switched the torch on and off, stared at the window, steamed over. Leaves rustled against his head. He leaned further towards until they separated. He rubbed the glass with his arm, hands. His face flattened against the door. He fumbled for the handle and fell out flashed the torch up to the trees, down into a row of statues. Light revolved, rotated over pieces, parts of stone, bronze glistened, sunk into greyness. Oblong shapes, sticks of iron, metal rose from uneven ground, levelled out towards the swimming pool. He climbed down, torch held firmly, directed upon the rungs his feet edged onto. Reaching the bottom, he looked at the square of sky, then down the slope to the platform, covered by tarpaulin, which he pulled off. Climbing up, he faced the way he had come. The torch held upright. Something scuttled behind, a flash of white dropped, fell away. He watched the owl climb higher until the sides of the swimming pool closed in. Yeah. That clip doesn't need translating, it's a language we recognise, but perhaps spoken in a voice we weren't expecting to hear. It doesn't much sound like a working-class voice. Nevertheless, that was Anne Quinn, a working-class writer from Brighton. 
1966 in the living room of performance poet Larry Goodell's house in Placitas, New Mexico. I'm extremely grateful to Larry for sharing that recording he made some 55 years ago. If you're interested in hearing more, do check out his Bandcamp site. Jennifer Hodgson put me in touch with Larry. She is currently working on the first biography of Quinn and is up to her eyeballs in details pertaining to Quinn's life and background, so I asked her to furnish us with a bit of biographical information. She was born in Brighton in 1936. She was brought up by her mother, who was originally Glaswegian and was, as far as I can gather, was a kind of like travelling salesperson. Her dad was kind of estranged, but she did get back in touch with him uh, later on as an adult. He was, I mean, on the birth certificate, he's listed as an optician, but he was also a kind of like amateur vaudevillian. He was like a sort of kind of light opera singer, as far as I can gather, and had kind of aspirations in that area. Quinn went to convent school in Brighton, and she left to go to secretarial college she trained as a shorthand typist and she worked in a solicitor's office and then she 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 moved to London and worked as a secretary in publishers offices and and, and kind of a, was a was a, a reader at points in publishers offices as, as well she kind of lived in bedsits in Soho during this period and that's where she began writing she 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 wrote two novels and ended up burning them prior to to Berg which was like her debut and yeah, she she published four novels during her lifetime. She she also wrote uh, quite a few kind of short stories and kind of the beginnings of a fifth novel that were some were published in magazines and such during her during her life. Some of them weren't. I collected those together and edited them, and they came out with and other stories in twenty eighteen as the as the unmapped country. So yeah, I mean, from the early sixties onward, she was a secretary. And then she she sort of had this writing career, and she really she really spent the on and off the majority of the the early mid sixties uh, in America. She got a D. H. Lawrence Fellowship to New Mexico, and then she got the Harkness Award, which funded kind of travel through through the states. So she spent a fair amount of like her actual writing career, which was only only really sort of in terms of public uh, publishing like a decade long. She spent quite a, a lot of that time in the states. So you know she's she's a she's a British writer, but really she she was really drawn to. She lived in a, a village called Placitas, which is just outside Albuquerque in New Mexico. And around there at that time, uh, Robert Creeley, uh, the poet, was living. So uh, and that became like a real sort of like uh, nerd for American poets uh, traveling uh, during that mid sixties period. So she really became kind of ensconced in this American poetry scene as a British novelist, which is kind of weird. Uh, but but upon reading her really makes sense. You know, she 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 wrote poetry, which for my money, interestingly, is like nowhere near as good as her novels. But her, her novels really, you know, she, she kind of identified as a poet who just happened to be writing in a, a sort of novelistic form, whatever that means. So she, yeah, Robert Creeley, Charles Olson, that whole scene, you know, she worked, she went to the Berkeley Poetry Conference. She, you know, she was she was part of all that. Quinn doesn't much sound like a working class writer and she didn't really write like one either and that's one of the things that fascinates me about her. There is often the expectation that a writer from a working class background will pen gritty, relentlessly grim social realism. There was certainly plenty of that around in Britain at the time that Quinn was writing her novels. 
The 50s and 60s saw an explosion of kitchen sink drama and literature that portrayed the disillusionment and rancour the lower classes were feeling towards modern British society and the status quo. It was a largely male-driven and male-centred movement, delineated by authors such as Arnold Wesker, John Brain, Alan Silito and John Osborne, who became known as the Angry Young Men and whose grievances were memorably typified by the character Jimmy Porter in Osborne's groundbreaking play, Look Back in Anger. I don't think it's terribly surprising that Quinn didn't work from within that very male-dominated centre of class consciousness. They frankly stink, she said of Osborne and his cohorts, with their dumb 19th century prose. And that's the thing, Quinn was doing really interesting things with prose, perhaps instinctively realising that it was there, in her relationship with words and sentences and their descriptive modes, that she could best exercise and experience freedom. That's not to say she eschews the quotidian entirely. Her books bristle with atomised details about bedsits, dingy B&Bs, dreary seaside towns and grimy smoke-filled pubs. But the subject and style of her writing transcends the ordinary. Sometimes, in fact, it seems to tunnel far down beneath it. As you heard in the clip, her prose is choppy, kaleidoscopic. Its intense evocation of texture, shape and geometry continuously destabilises the boundaries between the commonplace and the arcane objects and beings self and other. It makes for a completely absorbing and disorienting read. You're not quite sure where you are, yet there's a sensation of being gripped by something. It's an unnerving yet thrilling feeling. These characteristics, which very much went against the grain, led some critics such as Ronald Heyman and Robert Nye to be dismissive of Quinn's work on the grounds that it was derivative of the French New Wave and novels by writers such as Raul Grier and Sorot. It seems to me they were quite unable to give Quinn any credit because, from their class position, these chaps couldn't entertain the idea that actually the way she wrote was an authentic response to life from a working-class female perspective. Certainly, when I read Quinn, I experience her vertiginous style as a bona fide expression of that maddening paradox which underscores everyday life in a working-class environment. On the one hand, it's a full-on, in-your-face world, yet at the same time, much of what goes on seems extrinsic and is relentlessly uninvolving. You feel overwhelmed and understimulated all at the same time. Added to which, your setup is precarious, the walls are paper thin, your day is scuppered by intrusions, unexpected interruptions. You don't have much control over things or any buffers, you're constantly fretting about money, and all the while cultivating fantasies of a completely different sort of life. So it makes sense to me that a woman writing from within those circumstances would produce intense, restless work that attests to a heightened yet detached sensitivity. In a short piece from The Unmapped Country, titled One Day in the Life of a Writer, we learn how a typical day kicks off for Quinn. Letter from my publisher. Regret. Arts Council have refused a grant. No reason given. That's because they read what I did with the last one. Oh well, on to a passable crap. Retreat into ex-tenant's room to write. Confronted by a little heap of dust, bugs, etc. Landlady has brushed up. Cursing I put into dustpan to the sound of, Do you want some coffee now or later? Are you warm enough in there? What do you want for lunch? There's kippers, lamb stew, eggs or bacon or... It's a brilliant send-up of an often nauseating theme. Here's Quinn, with a room of her own. 
But like Diplifson, it's not an idyllic Wolfian chamber where she can quietly sequester herself away and create in peace. Life is going on all around her. Very often, it's crashing in on her. Recently, I had a really interesting conversation with Professor of English Lee Wilson from Westminster University about Anne Quinn and her way of rendering the physical world. And Lee made the point that in order to be truthful, Quinn's description of it had to go beyond conventional grammar and sentence structure. Lee observed that there is a strong sense of the physical world in Quinn's work, but, she said, it's not saying, oh, this is just the there of the world and we can't change it, as a lot of realist writing does. It's almost like it animates the world. And if the world is animated, then it can change. It's alive and developing. This articulates really well what draws me back to Quinn's books. It's this feeling of the things of reality being shaken loose from their ordinary categories and thus becoming autonomous and mutable. Nothing is a given. Nothing is taken for granted. Nothing is set in stone. There's no sense that there is no reality. It's rather that it's being constructed and deconstructed all the time, moment to moment by our multifarious interactions with it. Writing the biography of someone who took such an unconventional approach to narrative must present some challenges, and perhaps some opportunities. I asked Jennifer to talk a bit about how she was going about bringing Quinn's life to the page. Writing this this book, you feel the sort of like really familiar narrative pull, right? You feel like you feel this sort of injunction upon you to write a story about self-transformation, about someone who was a secretary who becomes like an avant-garde pioneer writer, right? As if as, as if that's like they're two completely different states of, of being. And one of the things that I'm, you know, keen uh, not to do uh, in this book is just sort of like repeat the world as is you know like we we love stories like that because um that's what makes them special because you know that then she's the hero of the story who like embarks upon this journey of self-transformation but i think i think the thing is is that it's 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 never as simple as that you know um and and for for quinn she had this she had this this sort of halcyon period where she was she was basically rinsing all kind of like arts funding she could get she was rinsing the Arts Council. <laughs> she was rinsing various like American funding bodies and she was using it to have this like big time, tra- you know, traveling and being in the States and doing all, the, all of the things that she, want, she wanted to do. But the thing is for her, it wasn't, it kind of wasn't sustainable. So, you know, she had, she had really quite profound um, mental health difficulties, uh, which were kind of, kind of sort of episodic, but towards the end of her life became sort of more acute. And she ended up, you know, she ended up living back with her mum in her mum's flat in Brighton. Her her, her mum had a fall, and she had to sort of care for her. And she kind of ran out of money. The arts council stopped sort of sending her cash. And so, you know, I guess it's about uh, precariousness. You know, that that narrative about about the secretary who becomes an avant garde pioneer doesn't give an, give account of the lack of safety, the precarity, and the risk involved in doing something like that. There's no safety net. Lee Wilson shared some letters with me that were exchanged between Quinn and her publisher, Marion Boyer, and her agent, and they are so often about money. Larry told me that the Harkness Foundation money was a godsend and confirmed that money was an ongoing concern for Anne. It must have been very pressing the years before her death, he wrote in his email to me. In a letter Anne wrote to him in '66, she talks about a cargo trip around the world she wants to take. She's hoping that the sale of some of her stories will cover it. In the meantime, would Larry be able to lend her $200, 
it would, she writes, be one less headache if you could manage this. While researching the Quinn biography, Jennifer has amassed many personal letters Quinn wrote to friends and lovers, and she told me they express a longing for an open and receptive state while conveying the pragmatic difficulties she encounters while trying to bring that into real life. Jennifer said that in her correspondence, she often comes across as cheeky and full of mischief. In the type letters, she is especially swaggery, and then occasionally there are handwritten notes which are less buoyant and much more desperate. Jennifer read these letters chronologically and observes that Quinn sort of oscillates between these two states. As with Tove Ditlevson, we can see how precarious economic circumstances can cleave a woman in two so that she lives a kind of haunted existence, a life that is never fully realised. Here is the opening to Jennifer's brilliant, tender, insightful and humane biography of the singular yet divided Anne Quinn. She started off as a stack of printer paper, three archival boxes, and a small selection of second-hand paperbacks. Then she was a reel-to-reel recording of a voice that sounded nothing like her voice. Too weird, clipped, precious, RP proper, and tripping over words that were her own like she had never seen them before. People told me that was just how everyone sounded back then. For a while, she was a glamour shot, kept in a full-scap folder marked Anne, smooth and moon-faced, held there in soft focus and trimmed in marabou. Or she was that other photograph, the one where she is surging out of the frame that I don't like because she looks agitated and maniacal. She liked it though. She thought she looked like a sorceress. And she was a sorceress, and a beacon, and a side alley, and a pioneer, and a lost hope, and a silenced and forgotten woman writer, for ages just one of so many, and then suddenly deemed to be somewhat important amongst all the others that languished down that well. People kept telling me things about her, and I would note them down duly on the backs of receipts so that I might lose them more easily later. People kept telling me I should write a biography of her, that hers was an important life, a significant life, a life worth telling. But I did not want to write it because I knew exactly the kind of story they meant. It was the same as all those other stories about the kind of life it is possible to have. It was a story about self-invention, about how you can, through an effort of the will, become someone other than yourself. But I have never believed those stories because it seems to me that you won't shake off whatever it is you're trying to shake off because it's already in you and you've already left some part of yourself back there and from then on and forevermore, those two parts will always just be coring at one another. You'll never get them to stop. Born in 1940, Annie Arnaud grew up in Normandy, where her parents ran a café épicerie. She attended university in Rouen and became a secondary school teacher. Her first book, Cleaned Out, was published in France in 1974, and though a few of her books have been available in English for quite a while, it was Fitzcarraldo bringing up the years in 2018 that really brought her to audiences in the UK and Ireland. 
Ernaud has been garlanded with prizes, including the Marguerite Jorzenar Prize in 2017 for her life's work. And we have been quick here and in the UK to show admiration and adoration for her books. John Banville said the years was nothing short of a revelation. Annie Ernaud's book, he says, blends memories, dreams, facts and meditations into a unique evocation of the times in which we lived and live. Olivia Lang called it an astonishing achievement, and Deborah Levy regards it as one of the best books you will ever read. Because there is quite a significant gap between when she became known in France and when we discovered her here, I wanted to talk to someone from France who could give Ernaud's work some context. I was interested to know what place she occupies in the literary landscape in France, who reads her there and so on. So I spoke with Laurence Leloulio, who is originally from France and now lives in London, where she works as a literary agent with a fantastic international list, which means she is a books in translation aficionada. She's introduced me to the work of many fabulous authors from all over the world, and she had plenty of illuminating things to say about Annie Ernaux. It's interesting that the publication of The Years is exactly 10 years after it was first um, published in France. And in terms of her standing and how she was um, perceived, the, the other thing that's interesting is she's just given an interview with the director, Céline Schiemer, who made a portrait of a young lady on fire. And uh, this is a brand new feminist magazine that's just launched in France. And it's interesting to be that throughout the years, there are new publications for whom she is absolutely essential. In fact, so essential that she's the lead. It's the biggest part of the magazine. And in that interview, she says things that I didn't know. So for instance, uh, her first novel was um, turned down. She wasn't able to place the first book she wrote. And then for 10 years, she just went off and lived. So she had her kids and she was teaching and she was married. And then she published um, the first novel that Gallimard bought. And that already, you know, not everybody gets to publish with Gallimard. So I would say that almost immediately there was a recognition of the literary quality of her work. And she has won prizes. She won the prize for uh, the place, the big prize, the, the Prix de Renaudot. She had won prizes in other countries. She was very big in Italy long before she was read um, in other countries. So I think she's always, um, maybe there was a bit of a dip before the years. Maybe in France, there was a recognition around um, particularly the place. And then there was the book that's coming out now, Passion, um, uh, Passion Simple, which again was interesting because some people loved it and some people attacked it. So I think she was always a little controversial and also unlike anyone else. There was no one else in her generation writing with that similar project. And she explains in this interview that um, when that particular book was published, um, Passion Simple, she was compared to Emma Bovary. And she said it was an extraordinary thing to happen because no one seemed to realize that she wasn't a character. She was the person who'd actually taken up the pen to write her story. And then she says that some male critics called her Madame Overy and attacked her. And the feminists attacked her as well for focusing on something that they felt wasn't going to help the cause. So I think she was always 
difficult to place. She is interesting on things like autobiography, for instance. She doesn't like the term, so she always said that it's not what she uh, wanted to do. And I think she came after the Nouveau Roman, which is not really a literature that's read very much um, anymore. I mean, in France, it is read as, as, as part of you know studying, but internationally, maybe people like Nathalie Sarraud are read. So she comes from that and that there was already an attempt to um, not dress up reality and to depict facts as they happened. Um, but what she wanted, what she set out to do, something she calls a sort of auto-sociobiography. So she's always been very clear on a couple of points. One is really at the heart of her project, and there's the feeling of betrayal, betrayal of class and shame. And she talks about that and she evokes people who are very different from her, like Jean Genet. So she will say um, writing is the ultimate recourse for those who have betrayed. And what she seeks out to do is give um, a literature to that world and to that social class that she comes from. And in that, she's built something she calls écriture um, plate, so the sort of flat writing. And the idea is that the people she talks about should be able to read her books. There should be um, no real clash between describing what maybe is sort of more noble as a theme. So the passing of time or how memory works, how we evoke the past and things like going to the supermarket or maybe just getting on the train, you, you know, commuter trains which she writes about a lot in other books, her aunt in English or diaries that she's published. And for her, the idea is that her experience is a kind of vessel. Uh, so people recognize something through it. And there's definitely a sociological element for her, as well as a the sort of feminist project. The fact that she embodies something. So through her story, people will recognise uh, or discover things they don't know. Laurence went on to say that Anneau described herself as a class defector. She went from the class that was dominated economically and intellectually to the class that was dominating, at least intellectually, she explained. An element of her work that strikes me the most deeply is how it charts and examines this breaking away from her working class origins. In contrast to Ditlevson, who left school at 14 because the family needed her to start earning, Ano carried on at school and later qualified as a teacher. Her father died just two months after she passed her teacher training exam. Ano's book, A Man's Place, begins with the compression of these two momentous and very different events. They are conveyed to us in just a page and a half. Laurence observes that this confluence makes the reader aware of attention right away. A sense of betrayal haunting the author is already there in the first page of the book. A Man's Place was Anneau's first non-fiction book. It was published in France in 1984. It is a painstaking, tender and candid account of the transition that occurred when she was still a very young woman into intellectual middle-class life. She describes how it felt like her whole world turned upside down, how she felt divided in herself, and how a distance came between her and her father. Although it has something to do with class, she writes, 
It was different, indefinable, like fractured love. Something of this schism persists in the retelling and makes finding a mode of recollection difficult for her. She writes, I would like to convey both happiness and alienation, but instead I seem to be doing quite the opposite, constantly wavering between the two. The Years was published in France in 2008, 24 years after A Man's Place. An autobiography that covers the years 1941 to 2006, it has been heralded as a new kind of life writing that lays bare how our most personal experiences are shaped by the economic and social conditions of our lives. Family narrative and social narrative are one and the same, she says, just a few pages in. In this book, Arnaud has found a totally distinct narrative form that is able to convey not only happiness and alienation both, but also the subjective and the impersonal, the private and the communal. There is no wavering here. She partly achieves this by writing mostly in the first-person plural, with occasional interludes of the third-person singular, which is a really effective way of showing how individual and collective experience are always in tension with one another. Quite often, it is when she is looking at photographs of her younger self that the she point of view is adopted. It's a good method because it feels like a completely natural thing to do. Many of us, when looking over old photos, are tempted to refer to our distant selves this way. These interludes feel like natural pauses in the bigger socio-historical narrative and allow Erno to focus in on herself and her interiority for a moment. Examining a black-and-white 1958-1959 class photo from the University of Rouen, she re-inhabits this bygone South and writes, More than anything, she wants not to be seen. We get a snapshot into this bright young woman's inner world and learn that she is unwilling to say her parents run a café epicerie. She is ashamed not to know the meaning of certain recondite expressions. She is ashamed of her imitation suede jacket. As in A Man's Place, Erno recounts in frank quotidian detail the circumstances that made her increasingly conscious of her severance from her family and her home life. Moving back into the third person, she recounts returning home at the weekends as a student with a bag of laundry, an occasion that gave her parents a good excuse to invite over family and friends for a meal. The table talk, she writes, revolved around the arrival of a supermarket, the building of a public pool, the Renault 4L and the Citron Ami 6, the best way to prime rabbit and which local butcher served the customer best. She sacrifices hours that could be spent reading Virginia Woolf and sociological textbooks in order to awkwardly join in the conversation. We could not help but notice their way of mopping gravy off a plate until it was clean, shaking a cup to dissolve the sugar, uttering the words a high-ranking person with a hush of respect. And suddenly we saw the family milieu from the outside as a closed world that was no longer ours. The ideas that possessed us were alien to illness and factory layoffs, vegetables to be planted with a waxing moon, and all the other subjects discussed at the table. Hence our decision not to talk about ourselves and our studies, careful not to contradict them on any subject. 
She no longer has anything in common with the working-class world of her childhood. Like Ditlevson, she has to fake it a bit and not let on what she is really thinking. At the same time, Ono does not feel she belongs to the bourgeoisie either. She is stronger, more independent than girls from that background. Spending too much time with them, going to their parties and so on, feels demeaning. She has gone over to the other side, she writes, but she cannot say of what. The life behind her is made up of disjointed images. Disjointed and enduring. Indeed, Tove knew the power of these fragments. At the end of the Copenhagen trilogy's first volume, she writes, My childhood falls silently to the bottom of my memory, that library of the soul from which I will draw knowledge and experience for the rest of my life. Further on in the years, Erno writes of herself, She is visited by fleeting images of her parents in the small Normandy town, her mother taking off her work coat to go to evening prayer, her father coming up from the garden with a spade over his shoulder, a slow-moving world that continues to exist, more surreal than a film and far removed from the world in which she lives, modern and cultivated, forward-moving, toward what is difficult to say. This new place she has entered is somehow vague. She feels she is nowhere, she confesses, inside nothing except knowledge and literature. This feeling accounts for Ano's resistance to art for art's sake. For her, writing absolutely has to have purpose. It has to reach into day-to-day life. It has to be, in her words, a means of action on the world. In an interview, she explains, The challenge to the aesthetics of art for art's sake finds fertile ground with me because of my social affiliation to the world of the dominated, which has always made me feel the weight of reality and social determinisms. Consequently, writing is a subject in itself. Erno is all too aware that language invisibly conveys hierarchies and sexism and needs, therefore, to be acted upon. How to write cannot be separated from what to write. Like Quinn, she doesn't take language for granted. She doesn't use it without examining it, unravelling it, without asking, what are these words? Who made them and for what reasons? And are they the same reasons that I have for using them? Probably not. So I must find my own way to use them. And both writers, by deliberate and very distinct methods, reawaken language. I said to Laurent that it's as if language for her is not simply a mediating device. Indeed, Annie says of her background, it was the world in which language was the very expression of reality. The expression of reality. It is not an explanation of reality, nor is it an interpretation or a judgment or a justification of it. Here's Laurence again. I mean, she says she writes, she rewrites a lot. So it looks really effortless, but she goes back. And it's interesting. Um, there's a diary she published. So, um, Simple Passion, there's a diary that she published many years later, which is the diary that she was keeping when she when she was having the affair. And I don't know why, she, she says she's not entirely sure why she published it. She just, as a sort of counter work. And it's interesting when you read that and then you see how that became the novel, what she 
took of that. But it's also full of descriptions of, you know, going to the going to the supermarket. So she records, she she's kept diaries all her life and she records very carefully the details of everything. And I think it's the for me, it's the idea that all these fragments come together and they help us understand what remains of time, particularly of the past. And it's almost like a, not a catalogue, but I think it's a, it's a deliberate decision not to add interpretations or, or feelings. The use of her diaries certainly brings a special kind of life to her books, as if the past is still somehow happening, which of course in many ways it is. I am not trying to remember, she writes in a girl's story. I am trying to be inside, to be there at that very instant, without spilling over into the before or after, to be in the pure imminence of a moment. This liveness in Anou's books and her unusual treatment of time is what makes her work so poignant and penetrating. It encourages a mode of reflection on one's own life that is painful, yet empowering, and free from cliché. I spoke with the author, Deborah Levy, who has written three volumes of her own living autobiography about these characteristics of Anou's writing. I've been reading the years for years, because it's so full of, um, uh, not, not full of information, it's just so, so full of life. Um, the thing about um, Arnaud and Duras is how they, for me, is, is how they approach time. Because they don't really do chronological time. They, 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 they make a narrative design that can hold a rupture in time. And for me, so, so, so we don't get lost in the wrong sort of way, we get lost in the right sort of way, which is, which, by which I mean, um, we don't need answers to questions, but we like to know, um, we, 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 we with those writers, with their chase, they're chasing something. Um, and, um, so they both collapse the present into the past, the future into the present. Um, that they, um, they can cover in one page any number of eras and, and time zones. Um, but it's all coming back. It's all coming from the same mind. It's all coming from, from the same inquiry, which is really what's the point of life? How how to live? What's the point of life? What's what what uh, what's going on um, socially and inside them? And um, so those big questions that um, really we all ask. Every everyone asks. Person who picks up the garbage and uh, a, a professor at a university. We're all asking the same questions. And they don't, they're not awkward about that because they weren't, um, <clears throat> they didn't come from a class that felt entitled in the first place to ponder such things. And so it gives their writing, gives their writing a depth charge. It comes from somewhere, somewhere real. 
I like their sense then the, the, the sense when reading them that they don't apologize for their existence. They have a, a sense of entitlement in the best sense of that word. It's not a word that's that's usually that usually means something good. But for me, it meant something good because they felt entitled to have a life of the mind. And uh, women of their generation and women of their class uh, were not entitled to actually, uh, you know, the way that they thought their mind was not the most valuable part of them. So it was immensely encouraging to me to... Uh, read their work with that kind of tone in it that that, that you know um that, that the, the, the sort of freedom they gave themselves to write in um to write themselves to write their minds into the world as much as everything else they wrote into the world that was valuable to me deborah's words really resonate with me reading the work of annie and and quinn and hove ditlevson the last few years has really brought home to me how important, how necessary it is to write about your own direct experiences in your own words. As we have already heard from Anno, language contains its own biased formulations. Finding your own words requires absolute commitment and honesty. Writing from a place which privileges experience over received ideas is not really about spilling the beans. I don't regard any of these writers to be purveyors of confessional literature. What they are doing is nurturing their own personal epistemology so that they can expose and perhaps to some degree transcend the ways they are defined by other people and external circumstances. Thinking about my own working class origins through the prism of these writers' books encouraged me to look back on my own life to recall what kinds of books I read when I was younger and examine the sorts of relationships I had with them, to reflect upon how and why I began to write and to remember what I imagined success as a writer might feel like and open up for me. What kind of life would it enable? And of course, in the process of all this remembering, so many small scenes and slow images from my own childhood came back to me that library of the soul. This mode of reflection and the memories it nudged to the surface are traced and expressed in my new novel, Checkout 19, which is due out in August. And I'm going to finish the programme with just a very short extract from that. I'd read Frankenstein and Anna Karenina and Madame Bovary and The Wife of Bath and The Woman in White and Sons and Lovers and Bram Stoker's Dracula for years, I read it at the beginning of every winter, and I'd read A Room with a View by E.M. Forster. And after I read it for the second time, I got it into my head to go on a trip to Italy, on a wild goose chase in search of love. I went to the travel agents beside Devon Savories, and after looking through some brochures in the BHS CAF opposite with a couple of girlfriends, I booked a package deal for the three of us and paid off my share in instalments with the money I earned at the supermarket. We were 17, which was the same age Lucy Honeychurch was when she set off for Italy with her aunt, Charlotte Bartlett. We travelled by coach all the way. It took a day and a half, and we went through Luxembourg, 
and late at night we skimmed around Lake Como. I could see little lights up in the hills through the coach window. I've always loved to see little lights up in the hills through a car or a bus window, especially when there is water below. It all looked so magical, a world unto itself. How nice it must be to have a house up there in the hills, with all those trees full of russet animals and speckled birds, and knowing lights twinkling around you, and the deep still water below. My two friends had not read A Room with a View. They were studying other subjects, and knew nothing about the Italy that it depicted, and that I was fully expecting to discover. Very early one morning at my behest, the three of us set out on a day trip to Florence, and when we arrived we ran away from the coach and all of its English passengers smartish, and once we were satisfied we'd given them the slip, we stood about in a square deciding what to do next, and a man who was obviously not Italian almost immediately came lumbering over to talk to us. It was very annoying. He was from Wooden Bassett, it quickly transpired, which was a village just a few miles outside of the town where we all lived and went to college. He bragged about how he was playing two market traders off of one another. Soon he'd have himself a shit-hot leather jacket for practically peanuts, he said. Indeed, he was very pleased with himself and obviously thought we'd find his acumen impressive too. I did not. I was really annoyed and wanted to get away from him at once. I couldn't understand why my two friends went on talking to him. He was really uninteresting and his antics quite inane. Furthermore, he came from a village just a few miles from where we all lived. I wanted to be neither reminded of where I came from, nor of the monkey business that people from that same place typically got up to, wherever they happened to be, while I was on this trip. His presence in Florence was ruining everything. I stared across towards Santa Croce and fixed my gaze and spirit on a statue there in an effort to blot him out and augment my connection with the beauty and love and courage the E.M. Forster's novel had prepared me for. I wanted to stand as she had stood, with my elbows upon the parapet. I wanted to walk where she had walked, among the churches, the basilica, the statues. To see those things and be overcome. I did not count on seeing a murder by the fountain as she had done. I did not count on seeing blood, real blood. I would see Christ, yes, Christ, wounded and suffering and bleeding on the cross, and my own blood would be shaken from my heart, like Dante's blood was once shaken from his, and I would swoon as Lucy Honeychurch had swooned. Except I wouldn't faint exactly. I had more space in me than she did, quite literally. She wore a corset, after all. This edition of Writer Presents was written and presented by Claire Louise Bennett and produced by Benedict Schlepper-Connolly. Additional research and production was by Laura Harvey Graham, Katie Mishler and Ian Dunphy. It was edited and mixed by Ian Dunphy and Benedict Schlepper-Connolly. The music was composed by Benedict Schlepper-Connolly and performed by the composer along with Nathan Sherman. Special thanks to Dorton Norse, Jennifer Hodson, Lawrence Laluyo, Deborah Levy and Larry Goodell for their contributions to the programme. Writer Presents is produced with the support of the Arts Council on Corla Allian.
If you've enjoyed this programme, do consider buying Molly membership for yourself or for a friend. It's really the best way to support the museum and our programming. Visit molly.ie forward slash membership to find out more. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie. Thank you for listening.